0: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by our chief TV critic and my partner in crime, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
1: Oh, it is, as ever, an honor and a privilege, Leslie. (laughs)
0: Likewise, my friend, and you're just back from London for a quick jaunt to see a bunch of theater.
1: I I saw five plays in five days and enjoyed some really long plane flights, Uh, let me tell you. Ah flying in 2020 for 11 hours at a stretch always fun
0: yeah no never
1: (laughs) anyway it was a good time I would say that it cleared my head a little bit but it really didn't
0: well what was your favorite thing that you saw while you were there
1: saw a great production of Uncle Vanya with uh, Toby Jones uh, Karen Hines um, who else Richard Armitage and Amy from Sex Education who it turns out is really good on stage it's a fantastic part the part she played in Uncle Vanya, and she was really great. And so she's really
0: great on sex education.
1: I, th- I am. I now think that she is a, a talented actress as opposed to an actress who I hadn't seen anything before and who was good in one part. Now I think she's just kind of good. Very cool.
0: Well, what do you say we dive into headlines? Let's... Well, let's start off with this week in Greg Berlanti news. The super producer has hired former AMC and Fox president David Madden to run television for his Warner Brothers-based company. Meanwhile, Sarah Schechter, who has helped Berlanti double the number of scripted shows since she joined the company in 2014, has been promoted to partner and chairwoman. Dan, it's a a rare move for a former network topper to to move to a production company, but from my vantage point, it's a great hire for both.
1: It makes Some sense. And it makes sense for Greg Berlanti and Sarah Schechter now also as he slash they are now basically, you know, a network to have someone who has experience with. Running a network seems actually like a very valid thing to do because they are not at this point simply a, a production shingle.
0: Yeah. 22 scripted TV shows, another unscripted show. He's doing multiple features. He's committed to doing a number of YA-focused films for HBO Max. Yeah, That, that company is, is just growing. And I think adding a, an executive with some muscle like David Madden is a, is a smart thing.
1: Uh, Continuing with headlines, uh, in an Anchorman reunion, Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd will star in a TV series based on the podcast The Shrink Next Door. Uh, It will be shopped to premium cable networks and streamers. And Leslie, I'm going to go out on a limb and say someone is probably going to be interested in that pairing.
0: Yeah, I'm going to guess it's going to go to Netflix, which reminds me that uh, Paul Rudd's Netflix show, Living existed. with Yourself existed. Yes, it ran for one season. <laughs> they haven't renewed it yet, but Paul Rudd had a, only had a one year deal for that anyway. So even if they do renew it, won't be with Paul Rudd.
1: <laughs> Fortunately, we can all be cloned. I believe that was the lesson of that show, <laughs> if there was a lesson.
0: In the kids' space, Nickelodeon has set its development slate, which includes renewals for franchises like Paw Patrol, which is a favorite of my nieces, and the order of a SpongeBob SquarePants prequel series.
1: SpongeBob Square Diapers. This week in Netflix series orders, Narcos boss, Eric (laughs) Newman, is teaming with Peter Berg and Alex Gibney for a scripted limited series exploring the opioid crisis. Those are talented people, so
0: sure. Last week, we did a couple of segments looking at pilot season, specifically what what's going on at the networks. And you heard from Michael Thorne about the network perspective. Now we're getting into the casting part of pilot season. So this week, Masters of Sex alum Annalee Ashford will star in Chuck Lorre's CBS comedy Be Positive. Melissa Leo will top line Fox crime drama Blood Relative. James Walk will star in NBC's boyhood like drama Ordinary Joe from producer Matt Reeves, who's making a little movie called Batman.
1: And in renewal news, and in news of shows that you may not have known were still on television, NBC has picked up the James Spader drama The Blacklist for an eighth season. Eight. Who knew?
0: James Spader. I'm going to go with that. Oh,
1: how well do you think he knows? I bet you if we could sit down with James Spader and ask what season his TV show is in, he would have to think about it. That's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, that's very fair. (laughs) Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top 5. Number 1. Leading off this week in the first of a new recurring segment looking at the year in TV so far, we are thrilled to welcome Ingu Kang, the Hollywood Reporter's newest TV critic. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi.
1: Welcome. We're so happy to have you in the family and to have you both in the THR family and the TV's Top 5 family, both, I guess. So, now you are now you are a part of all of our worlds.
2: Yes, I am also in your dreams tonight. (laughs) Well, that just got creepy really,
1: really, really quickly. Um,
0: Well, I mean, you've been with THR now for about a month and a half or so. Yes. Talk us through some of the reviews that you've done so far. Like, What have you enjoyed about THR and what you've uh, reviewed so far?
2: I think THR... Has been very good about letting me do the kinds of reviews that I want to do in the format that I want to do. And that's been really great. I did like a really fun roundtable discussion about work in progress, just like a tiny little show that I really wanted to give as much love as possible to. That was a really great experience. Dean and I did a roundtable discussion about the endings of Bojack Horseman and
1: good place
2: the good place sorry i liked one of those endings so much more than the other you can probably tell which one <laughs> um
1: <laughs> one was apparently forgettable
2: yeah i anyway it's been really great to champion a lot of the stuff that i've loved on such a uh, big platform i think the thing that i've been recommending to everyone lately has been visible which is a five part uh documentary about queer representation on tv uh from believe it or not, the 1950s, to now. And that, I think, is one of those projects where it was obviously made with so much love and so much care and so much thoughtfulness. And, um, yeah, it's I just love championing stuff that I love, and I'm so glad that T Shark lets me do that as much as possible.
1: I think it's interesting that there was definitely a period in television evolution where, you know, the holidays, Christmas, things stopped being on television and everything got quiet and the beginning of the year might be quiet. And I don't think anything is quiet on TV anymore. But I do feel like we're about to hit kind of a pivot point in the year because a lot of the big things are coming back, whether it's Better Call Saul, which comes back this week, whether it's some people apparently on Twitter are excited about Westworld coming back, which I have to admit baffles me. It's a big show,
0: Dan. It's a big show.
1: I understand it's a big show, and it is a show that's been nominated for a drama series Emmy and all that. Uh, it's still—the second season was bad enough.
2: I feel like the Westworld <laughs> is, like, one of those shows that, like, are supposed to feel exciting, are supposed to feel like an event that's happening.
1: Some people seem to be indicating it, but then we get into March, and then you got better things coming back. And so let's concentrate, though, on the first couple months of the season, whether you reviewed it or not. What have been a couple of your favorite things?
2: Um, I already mentioned Invisible. I think that everyone knows that they're supposed to be watching Cheer. Um, I think, honestly, the thing that I really want people to watch is a Netflix nonsense show called The Circle. (laughs) I feel like everyone should watch The Circle. It is basically a social media reality competition series. And if that sounds incredibly stupid to you, it is incredibly stupid. And yet... (laughs) Just like, it's basically a bunch of people who are all locked in a room by themselves. And they they all have access to a computer and a screen. And you're watching people dictate to probably like a production assistant, like right off camera, what is supposed to go on the screen. And essentially, they're supposed to build ally ships through chat rooms and private DMs. And at the end of like each episode, they get ram- Ranked. And then like the lowest ranked, or I think it's like the highest ranked <laughs> member. So like the most liked competitor gets to choose like who is, has to leave. And then like another person comes in, it's adapted from a British TV series. Uh, I get it. It sounds unbelievably stupid. I think like the first 30 minutes of the show, like ruined, like a lot of my brain cells. And yet once you get into it and once like the catfishers, Because believe me, there are catfishers in this reality program. I think it's mostly like men uh, who pretend to be women or men who pretend to be hotter men than they are. Once the catfishers (laughs) start catfishing each other and then telling the camera, like, I think I'm really getting this person. But then they're both saying that about the other. This show is amazing, you guys.
1: (laughs) Until you got to the part where you said it was amazing, you <laughs> hadn't convinced me that it was necessarily amazing. So I may need to take your word for it. I feel like Netflix is doing a lot of these. They've got a blind dating show that's yes,
2: coming up. Yes, Love is Blind.
1: Also, is is that also brilliantly horrible sounding? <laughs>
2: I haven't seen it. I think the point of love is, love is Blind is like they have to agree to like marry each other, right? Sounds right yeah i don't know i love trash television when there's something like a really when there's like a new hook to it because i feel like with all of like this like content apocalypse that we're living through anything that like stands out anything that i haven't seen before automatically like is the thing that i will be excited about because i guess i'm like a magpie when it comes to new shiny things and so the fact that the circle is showing me something just, like, reaches, like, a new level of, like, stupidity just really excites me, you guys. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just, I can't get as excited about things reaching new levels of stupidity <laughs> because I feel like there are all a lot of them variations on previous levels of stupidity that I invested too much time in already. So, like, Love is Blind... It sounds a lot like Ninety Day Fiance, which I didn't watch, but I watched. I
2: love Ninety Day Fiance,
1: but which lots of people do. But I watched every episode of Fox's Married by America, which lasted for a season and had roughly the same premise as all of this. So it comes down to it's almost like a, a time served kind of thing, where <laughs> where my response is, yeah, I did that. I, I in fact interviewed like half the cast of members of, of Married by America because uh, because the Fox publicist on it was very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, Jill Hudson, for letting me talk to. All of those fine by Married by America people.
2: Uh... I don't think you should hold against the circle. The fact that like a publicist pushed you into doing something you didn't want to do.
0: <laughs> it's all. Or a job required you to do
1: something you didn't yeah, want exactly. to do. I, I'm pretty sure I voluntarily interviewed the people by Mary uh America, America
0: yeah Yeah. you still voluntarily watch every episode of of Survivor Survivor. which is a show that pissed you off to no degree last year it absolutely last last year did
1: the new season thus far has been pretty good so how about things with scripts what have you actually liked in the scripted sphere or I've, you can go on about, you know.
2: <laughs> I really like Little America, which is also Apple TV Plus. Um have, either of you guys seen it?
1: I've seen about half of it. I haven't made okay. it through all of it yet, but what about you,
2: Leslie. This is where I duck and
0: cover and say, I'm not <laughs> I'm not a critic and that's my way of saying I didn't but watch it. But you should yet. still
1: watch the good things. And and Little America really is good and it's one of those things where I've watched exactly enough to know that if I had another 4 hours of free time, I would Two love hours. to
2: they're half-hour episodes. I guess that sounds
1: episodes. right. Yeah. yeah, so I would I would love to finish it at some point because it, it really is... It's a thing of, of substance. It's a, It actually has value in a lot of the things we talk about. <laughs> Are you going to tell me The Circle has value or just that it's fun to watch? <laughs> you can I, say it has value. I'm totally accepting of that.
2: I feel like they're... I feel like TV is still sort of catching up in a lot of ways to internet culture. And I think that the ways that people interact online is so stupendously, like wondrously different from the way people interact with each other in real life. And so the way that like people either actually manipulate other people like through their words through images or like the assumptions that people like automatically make right based on like an image or like one line of text or the ways that people think that they're manipulating other people <laughs> like all of that stuff is honestly like weirdly perversely right for reality tv
1: what else on the scripted side of you liked? i know that you you liked everything's going to be okay right on uh, on freeform Because that's one of the things I've enjoyed most. That's the the Josh Thomas show. The Josh Thomas show.
2: Um, I really like that show. I feel like I am becoming like a total freeform fanatic. I'm really enjoying the bold type. Of course, everyone's like, I think it's like the media industry's like favorite hate watch.
0: But it's also become one of freeform's brand defining shows. I mean, this is someone that was their big creative leap to do that one. And then they were prepping that at the same time as a Pretty Little Liar spinoff and look look which one survived.
1: But and it's also I think it's notable that when you say it's the media industry's favorite hate watch, I think for about the first season and a half, It was actually a show that people were liking in earnest, and it really has felt as if the conversation has turned from, "Hey, this is a really cool, smart, progressive show," to, "Oh my god, they keep doing stupid things. Why do they keep doing stupid things? Stop doing stupid things." Yeah, but like,
2: which other freeform show is like all of media Twitter a Twitter about?
1: It is. It is true that the conversation still exists. Just I, I personally stopped watching it about halfway through the second season because I wasn't enjoying it anymore, and for whatever reason, that was not one that I needed to keep going with as a hate watch personally. But you know,
2: I'm still enjoying it, um, and I also really love Groanish, which is another free form show. I finally decided this year to give up on Blackish. I think it, the format just got like too repetitive for me. But uh grown-ish feels like it's entirely own thing. And I love that it captures young people at, I think, like a at in 2020 and not like 1997.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and since we're speaking about Freeform, I actually really like the new Party of Five. I mean, I'm woefully behind on it, but I loved the first three episodes.
2: I am very behind on it, as I have not seen a single episode. Oops. It's
0: it's decent. It has it
1: yeah. has as I as I always say, it has a purpose, and so many remakes and reboots don't. You know, there's no angle that says this is the reason why we had to make that show. Whereas the Party of Five really and truly does have some measure of imperative behind it, and I appreciate that, while also knowing it's I'm not necessarily fully its target demographics. So. Right, but. I appreciated it enough. Anything else you want to shout out before we move on?
0: What did you guys enjoy? For me, I love sex education on Netflix. I thought season one was terrific and I plowed through season two, I think in two sittings, maybe. Yeah. Over, granted, it was over the holidays and before I actually had any work to do. But yeah, that, that's probably been my favorite show of the year so far.
1: I went through a, a wave of telling everyone they had to watch Cheer, and then, somewhat frustratingly, everyone just watched Cheer. Uh, not, <laughs> not in any way saying, incidentally, that I had anything to do Dan, with that. Do
0: you need someone to tell you that you were right? No.
1: Well, I, no. Actually, I'm pretty you, confident in that. But, but
0: you're you're you Dan you're of are the right, people. <laughs> you, you dance playing Cheer to everyone, and then everyone. Said, you know what? That Dan splaining is. That guy is a smart guy.
1: I prefer Dan to the people. We're we're gonna, <laughs> we're going to stick with that one. No, uh, that was when I told people to watch, and that people actually have watched, and that's been gratifying. I also spent a couple of weeks telling everyone to watch USA's Dare Me, and I don't feel like that has acquired no. the same level of momentum. And I continue, but I
0: think it will when it hits streaming. I think it totally, whether will. that's people, on Peacock or Netflix, I don't know. People don't have any
1: will. awareness of of. What that show is, more people would like that show if they watched it. So I'll just, I guess, continue to tell people to keep is watching it. Is it
2: better or worse than The Circle?
1: <laughs> I haven't watched The Circle, but it's definitely more scripted than The Circle.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: maybe. <laughs> well, let's look ahead
0: really quickly. But, you know, March, as Dan, you know, March is just around the corner and it has a lot of big premieres. Breeders, Dave, Better Things, All in FX, Amazing Stories, the Hillary docuseries, Westworld, Little Fires Everywhere, Madam C.J. Walker on Netflix, the return of One Day at a Time. You know, quickly for both of you, which of those March premieres are you most looking forward to?
2: Is it bad if I say One Day at a Time? That was like the no. one that I was giving like a fist bump to, like in the studio. I'm so, I am think that like the rescuing of One Day at a Time from Cancellation was like one of the biggest pop culture feel good stories of last year. And I just love that cast. I have really, I don't know, like settled into like it's like weird little crowd pleasing dramedy thing that it's doing. And I just want to spend more time with those people. And I don't understand why Justina Machado is not like the world's biggest star.
1: Well, racism.
2: Thanks, Dan. Dan's playing. <laughs>
0: what about you, Dan? What are you looking forward to in March?
1: Uh, let's see. What is March? I think I'm looking forward to talking more about FX uh, FX on Hulu's devs uh, because I think that it's going to be interestingly polarizing, which I approve of. I am definitely looking forward to one day at a time coming back. I'm looking forward to I always love better things. I'm happy to have that one back and I'm happy to have uh, Better Call Saul back. So there's a lot of stuff. And I'm looking forward to all of the excitement that people are feeling over Westworld now as they see the trailer.
0: I mean, it's a big reset for season three.
1: And that is the thing that gives me hope, is the feeling that it does appear (laughs) to have been completely and totally rebooted, which gives me the feeling or optimism that they simply knew that things went afield in the second season. Maybe
2: they need to reboot you.
1: Maybe. I always live in hope.
2: (laughs) Well, thank
0: you so much for joining us. And again, welcome to the team. Thank you.
1: Number two. Up second, last week, if you recall, Leslie took us through some of the biggest pilot season trends, and we also welcomed Fox's Michael Thorne to tell us what things are like from his perspective on the network side of pilot season. This week, we're going also Inside Baseball with Leslie to look at how the growing need for content is impacting TV studios.
0: Yes, this is a definite Inside Baseball segment, so if you're not a fan of how the sausage gets made on the TV side, you might want to skip ahead for the next five minutes. Ooh, but...
1: ooh, ooh, can I? No, uh, I kid. Uh, <laughs> but honestly, no, you, you noticed some interesting things when you were crunching the numbers this week, so so break down what you noticed this week for us, Leslie.
0: Well, every year, yes, networks order these shows, but it's who they're ordering them from, and in most cases, the push for ownership means that they're ordering them from their sibling studios, so nbc For example, as part of the NBC Universal fold, their broadcast studio is Universal Television. So the bulk of NBC's pilot orders come from Universal Television. And it's the same with ABC and ABC Studios, etc. One of the things that I noticed is that Disney Television Studios, which is the newly combined studio that encapsulates ABC Studios and 20th Century Fox TV, their volume was way down from last year, from 33 sales to 13. And that's partly because of what sources say is a strategy change. And specifically what I'm, I'm talking about is Disney's TV studios has six mouths to feed, right? So after the Fox deal, they've got FX now, Freeform, ABC, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, and ABC proper. So that's six. I think I've left out Nat Geo, but it is six different outlets. And, and of those six, five of them rely heavily on scripted programming. And Disney TV Studios' main priority is to supply content to those outlets. And to that end, when you look at, at some of the overall deals that we've talked about in the past year or so and since the merger closed – with folks like Dan Fogelman, who renewed his deal with a big nine-figure deal, Drew Goddard signing an overall deal, and even just this week, Denai Guerrero of The Walking Dead and who is a Tony-nominated playwright and who is a showrunner right now for a show called Americana that's coming to HBO Max, she signed a big overall deal with ABC Studios. And when you look at this, what used to happen is when you see someone signing an overall deal with ABC Studios, the implication was that their focus would be on supplying content to ABC, to only doing broadcast that's no longer the case. They're signing people who are going to go out there and create stuff for across the Disney portfolio, not just limited to ABC. And a big part of that is, yes, they have to supply content to Disney Plus and to Hulu and to FX, etc. But part of it, too, is that a broadcast hit is no longer the grand slam that it used to be. You know, meaning financially, yes, if, if you create a show like This Is Us, it's incredibly lucrative. But the chances of creating a hit show of that nature in this peak TV era with 530 plus shows is increasingly hard to do. And when you look at the financials, a show like This Is Us, yes, it's lucrative, but it's not like a two and a half men from like a decade ago. So that's one of the things that you're, you're noticing and that's we're seeing as part of this larger shift of what Disney is doing. And then, by the way, Disney is not alone in doing this. So this is something that Sony, which is an independent studio, meaning it doesn't have a network connected to it, has been doing for years. You know, So a lot of the stuff that, that Sony television is doing is for cable and streaming. And they still sell, you know, obviously Disney will still sell to outside suppliers, but that's been Sony's bread and butter. Like this pilot season, for example, Sony has two sales. Last year they had six and it was a huge deal. And now to
1: what degree does this simply feel like? The inevitable extension of of just where we're going and what we talk about every single week with the, you know, everyone has their streaming site, everyone has their cable entity, everyone, you know, sort of just where we are in the business these days. Does it feel as if there's an active shift that's happening this pilot season or simply this is just where we are
0: i think it's part of where we're going i mean it's definitely a statement on where we are currently and it's more in line with where we are headed in the next 6 to 8 months cuz you've got peacock and hbo max launching those are two streaming services for nbc universal and warner media And you're going to start to see a lot of these like a lot of these big overall deals like look at Greg Berlanti, for example. Yes, he's bulking up. He just hired a great executive to help run this company, but he is already doing, I think, two, maybe three. I think he's got three scripted shows and an unscripted show already on HBO Max. So that's he's obviously the most important producer that Warner Media has. It's probably him and like J.J., but you're not going to see J.J. Abrams create a show to air on the CW which Warner Brothers co-owns with CBS. You're not going to see J.J. Abrams create a show that, that goes to a broadcast network. His priority is going to be for probably for HBO proper with stuff like Westworld and probably at some point HBO Max. Is there...
1: Any way in which this is going to affect our ordinary listeners beyond the it just means there's going to be more programming everywhere I think, level.
0: Yes, there is going to be more programming everywhere. But I think it's also I, I think the biggest thing that you'll notice is someone like Dan Fogelman, who created This Is Us. His next show isn't going to be for for NBC or ABC, for that matter. His next show is for Hulu, which we talked about during—it was one of the big TCA announcements. And it's Steve Martin and Martin Short are starring in a comedy for Hulu. And that's, and that's a Disney platform. So he is a, one of the most important producers that Disney Television Studios has. And his next show is not going to be for Broadcast Network. It'll be for a streamer. And when you look at someone like Steve Levitan, who renewed his deal as well, he co-created Modern Family, Easily one of the biggest broadcast comedies of the last decade. And sources are saying his next show may not be for a broadcast network. So when you look at broadcast and and Emmys, and look, Modern Family's won, what, five best comedy Emmys? That show is signing off this year, but the guy who created this huge broadcast hit may not come back to broadcast, at least not immediately.
1: And while it's not actually technically a topic, do you want to at least uh, briefly touch on the latest evolution of the discussion of the Viacom streaming thing
0: yeah i mean we talked about that a little bit i think last week or the week before but yes they want you know whatever their new streaming platform is going to be called to be a collection of our content. brand of brands
1: is what i'm yes calling our, it. it's, it's our
0: brand it's the same thing it's basically they're going to take content from across their corporate landscape and funnel it into and prioritize doing something bigger and broader and if you, you ask me to name it i'm going to drop the cbs from it and call it just just call it All Access.
1: Exactly. Give CBS their own tab within that. Give mm-hmm. the BET thing a... Give
0: Showtime, if they have a tab. I mean, look, Showtime has its own platform. So, I mean, that that's part of one of my bigger questions. It's kind of, you know, look, we talk on this podcast all the time about what WarnerMedia is going to do with DC Universe. So that's a streaming platform that's owned by a company that is putting all of its muscle and might and finances behind HBO Max. Behind another so streaming why platform. would they have two completely separate, like when DC Universe could bolster what the larger HBO Max is? So I think that's my question for CBS Viacom. When you've got BET+, which, you know, Tyler Perry is a co-owner of, when you've got a Showtime platform, I, I mean, it, it, at some point it's just, it's peak streaming services. You know,
1: the sad thing is, I don't feel like we're there yet, unfortunately. But guess what? We will talk about this more in the future. Yeah,
0: There will be considerably more consolidation happening on the streaming side. Number three. Up third.
1: Let's go to the mailbag. As always, we ask you if you have questions for us. Just send us emails at TV's Top Five at THR.com. That's TV's Top Five, the number five at THR.com. And we have a bunch of missives from listeners this week. Our first question comes from friend of the five, Alan, whose last name rhymes with Schleppenwall. Um, <laughs> don't want to out his identity or anything, but let's just say we know him. He writes uh, with reports regarding uh, Viacom's plan to do some sort of all encompassing, our brand of brands. Overall streaming service into a single thing. Are there pre existing streaming services that you think would make more sense being bundled? Probably this one's for you, Leslie.
0: Yeah, definitely. First, I I do want to say that this brand of brands thing that Viacom is doing, which doesn't have a name, but let's just let me just suggest just call it all access. Drop CBS from it. Have CBS be obviously one of the the central tabs on it, kind of like you know, Marvel is for Disney Plus, and just call the whole platform all access. And to that end, I could see them. You know, look, BET has its own streaming service, which in um, where Tyler Perry is a partner in it, that should be bundled in with all access as well. Or and the same thing, you know, Pluto TV is a free streaming service that's ad supported. You could combine all of these different things like, you know, we talk on this show a lot about Warner Media and HBO Max and what will become of DC Universe, which is also owned by Warner Media and is a streaming platform designed for for the fanboy crowd with a lot of scripted originals and library content you know Warner Media is putting all of its muscle behind HBO Max so why not pull DC into it and have a comparable tab that's hey look we've got Disney Plus has Marvel but guess what you know come to HBO Max we've got all things DC you know that should all be bundled in so i think the same thing you're going to start to see the consolidation of all these little streaming services into bigger brands behind these unified conglomerates so NBC Universal has Peacock, and and when you look at the announcements that they've made and what library titles are coming there, it's from across all of the NBCU fold. So you've got content from Bravo and USA and E and NBC, and it's all coming into one thing. And I think the Viacom platform should do the same thing from across the CBS Viacom brands, and they've got a ton of brands. Yeah, so Comedy Central just. <laughs> MTV, like, they have a ton of IP. I think without
1: any question, we're on the verge of the future of TV being tabs. And uh, I think that...
0: Or chan- streaming channels. Streaming cha- yeah, cha- but streaming call it.
1: channels within bigger streaming hubs. So maybe the future of TV is hubs. But it, it's with so many different things. And it makes no sense for people to be paying for 10 or 15 different streaming services when certain of them are part of major corporations that... All want to have their own streaming service, so yeah, if, and
0: look at Disney is trying to do one price bundle for <laughs> disney plus hulu and e s p n plus at some point it's just all going to get put in one platform because to have separate interfaces and all it's just and passwords and oh god
1: it's it's all very inconvenient, and the whole purpose of this was supposed to be added convenience for the users and then we went far in the opposite direction, which means that it's time to begin to make convenience a priority again and so Hopefully sooner than later, we'll see that.
0: Yeah. For our next question, listener Natalie, no relation, wants to know how we keep track of all of the shows that we watch. Dan, I'm going to send this one for you, but you watch everything and you watch multiple episodes. You're a completionist. How do you keep track of everything?
1: Badly. Uh, (laughs) And that's how I fall behind on lots of things because I'm watching everything on all sorts of different services and so screener websites and and so some are only being kept track of partway. So it's actually very helpful that Netflix, for example, has its screener site interface within its actual programming interface. So that means that if I watch five episodes of a show on screeners for Netflix, Netflix remembers remembers that I've watched those five episodes because I don't probably remember that. Hulu, for example, that does not happen with Amazon, for example, that does not happen with. And it would be very convenient. Uh, but is there an
0: app that people use? I'm sure like- there are
1: lots of apps that people use and people use spreadsheets. And but I'm I'm sure there's something like Letterboxd uh, for film that people use to keep track of the films they've seen.
0: My mom has a yellow legal pad on her coffee table <laughs> with what shows that she sees commercials and trailers for that she wants to start watching.
1: Which is useful. I, I write down I have a document on my desktop with the movies that I've seen, but I don't have the same thing with TV. And so I use my DVR. A lot of what it's being used for is simply to keep track of the things that I need to watch, even if I have like five episodes of, say, The Goldbergs or Schooled. If I'm going to watch them, I'm going to watch them on Hulu because I have commercial-free Hulu. So I'm going to go and watch them on Hulu, and then I'll delete them from my DVR. But the reason why I remember I need to watch them at all is because they're on my DVR. DVR. It's it's wildly illogical, and with 530-plus shows and, just and, scripted. And, just Quib- scripted. and Quibi still coming up— Quibi. Quibi still Quibby. coming up. Whatever. I am. I am going full on revolution on this one. I uh, sorry, Jeffrey Katzenberg. You're pronouncing your own product's name incorrectly. I can't help you. Yeah. So so keeping track is is virtually impossible. And I wish that I were more OCD in terms of Google spreadsheets and whatnot to help me with this. It's just not the way that I'm OCD. So I definitely am in dozens of other ways.
0: I actually decided this year over the holidays, I'm like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a little notes thing on my phone and and write down all of the TV that I watched this year. And I think I made it through, I think, two weeks in January before I completely lost track. Not that I, and I don't watch, I admittedly don't watch that much. I sample a little bit and I stay loyal to like a handful of shows that I watch but it's impossible. And I can't, I can't imagine how you do it.
1: To me, that just seems like too daunting a task to be useful Whereas it's not like I couldn't use a good tool. But, oh, well, our next question comes from listener Cindy in Hawaii. and Aloha. And Cindy wants to know if Netflix is shooting itself in the foot with its penchant for canceling most of its programs after three seasons, especially given that hit shows with big episode counts like Friends, The Office and Law & Order are high demand as streamers look to build up popular quality library content.
0: Dan, I think about this question all the time. I mean, first, we know why Netflix cancels these shows after three or four seasons, and, and it's because it costs them a lot more money once the show goes on. So just like, and that's the same as it in broadcast or cable. As the show ages, license fees go up, the cast typically renegotiate and, and get paid more money, et cetera. But I think about this question a lot because, you know, Cindy, you're right, you know, look, Peacock and HBO Max, they're looking at The Office and Friends, respectively, to lay the groundwork. So they're launching these platforms the same way Netflix did. When you think about it, you know, in Netflix's early days as a DVD-by-mail thing, like how many times did you get, you know, trade in like, oh, like, I mean, I binged all of Battlestar Galactica via Red Envelope, you know? So that's how they used those platforms to start. That's how they built them up, big libraries of hit shows that that have a big audience. And I think... Once people finish watching Orange is the New Black, is that going to be a big enough asset to get people to go back and say, well, there was this great Jenji Kohan show. It's called Orange is the New Black. And we had a bunch of awards. I'm going to go back and re-binge it a second time. I, I don't know that that's going to happen. I mean, I obviously don't know anything about Netflix metrics because, you know, we they don't release anything. But I, I think they are, might be shooting themselves in the foot a little bit. But at the same time, they're spending so much money. I think it's $12 billion this year, $15 billion on original content. The numbers that, cease
1: to have any meaning. In yeah, I mean, it's just,
0: just keep adding zeros, and, and that's how much they're spending. Because, you know, while they aren't going to have these big hit library content like Friends and Law and & Order, which is obviously going to Peacock, they are going to have a show like Sandman, which is the most expensive DC comic show that will ever be produced. And they are going to have, you know, House of Cards, and they are going to have sex education. They are going to have these assets. They're, they're basically playing the volume game. So whereas these, some of these original shows can burn bright for a couple of seasons and then they go away, they still are going to burn bright. You know, people will still go back and watch 13 Reasons Why because they've heard of the show or they identify with it or someone told them to, to watch it. And it's still there. So, you know, while they aren't going to have these, these huge libraries, they're going to have volume of library. So it's not just having... One show that's got 250 episodes like Big Bang Theory on on HBO Max, it's going to have maybe, you know, here's 10 or 15 shows that were successful that you've definitely heard of. And, you know, they're going to have a variety. And the same thing is true with film. Like, look look at To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Right. You know, we just watched the second one for Valentine's Day. My wife hadn't seen the first one. So we went back and watched it. And that's something that's, what, two years old? And it's still there. It's the same idea.
1: And in addition, what Netflix would tell you is that part of their internationalizing is that not only is it the 15 or 20 shows that you liked and have heard of, but it's the fact that there are 10 or 15 shows from 30 or 40 different countries that are doing not the same thing, but are doing comparable things. I think that's one of the great things that Netflix has reminded us is that if you like a heist TV show, well, my goodness, they make several of those in Spain. If you like a teen soap opera, they make those absolutely everywhere. I, th-
0: I binged Elite, I, or I mean, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I, I believe it's, it's Elite. elite. Or elite. Um, it's fantastic, but the... Odds of me finding a Spanish language show in my normal viewing patterns were slim to none. But this was something that was word of mouth and and another friend and former colleague who was tweeting about it. And we have very similar tastes. And I was like, oh, I'll go check it out. And I binged the entire series in like
1: a week. And to me, that's actually perhaps the best thing that Netflix does is that it's a kind of globalizing service in that respect is that it really is saying storytelling is not identical, but. In case you didn't know from Joseph Campbell, there are certain roots of storytelling. And I think that every once in a while, things like that would break through in kind of random ways before, like Scandinavian thrillers, where it became this genre that people loved because everyone was like, oh, my God, there's a national industry built around doing these thrillers that are a lot like the ones that I enjoy. But Netflix is basically finding a way to do that with absolutely every genre and absolutely every country of the world.
0: And that's all library content. All of it. So,
1: so in that respect, that almost seems to go against your feeling that Netflix is shooting itself in the foot. It yeah. just simply is saying Netflix is shooting different in way. different directions, yeah. and so I think that's
0: yeah. And I think a lot of these other streamers that are starting to pop up are gonna are gonna follow suit because you know, look, you we used to be able to get a show like I'm gonna use Under the Dome because it was a kind of a, a really expensive show for a su- that was designed to air in the summer when usually you get low cost or unscripted programming in that little watched frame. And a show like that was expensive, and the only way that they were able to make it is by selling streaming rights to Netflix, and that offset the cost of actually making the show. It was profitable for it. They even sold an ad against it. But now we're in a world where all of these companies, these studios, which we just talked about, are going to basically wind up keeping all of their product and not selling it to third parties because they need it for their own platforms, and they just want you in their ecosystem. So if you've got a show like Dare Me, which you, you've been championing for a long time, Dan, or since at least the holidays— that's going to be a show that Peacock should want to have on its platform after it completes its run on USA Network because they want to sell ads against it on on Peacock. They want to keep the, you know the people from watching it from one of their platforms to another rather than giving it to a competitor where a show like you, for example, can become a hit after it bombed on Lifetime.
1: And I believe that with Dare Me, I think Netflix had the international on it. And so – Maybe they have the second window also. Yeah, I'm or? Not, I
0: can't remember where it's I mean, first, you have to keep track of what show what the shows are. Then you have to remember what network they're on. And then you have to, and remember, now what you have to remember what produced. studio produced it. Yeah, and now I, you have to remember who's got streaming rights. to it. It's just it's, it's a lot.
1: Anyway, so that's our mailbag segment for this week. But we are always eager to have more questions from you guys. As always, email us at TV's top five at THR dot com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR dot com. We love getting your questions. Number four. Our showrunner this week is the creator of Hunters, Amazon's audacious upcoming 70s set Nazi hunting drama starring Logan Lerman and a Yiddish speaking Al Pacino. This series, which premieres on February 21st, is David Weil's first as creator, though he's also worked on an upcoming Apple TV Plus series that's described as. A bit like War of the Worlds. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a big fan. It's so great. <laughs> so let's first start off talking about the origins. I know the series was inspired by your grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor. But I'm curious as to where the, I guess, the journey goes that takes you from hearing survivor stories to the particular blend of mm. action, comedy, drama that the series ended up being.
3: It's a great question. You know, I, I think when I first heard the stories, I was so young. And so the way I could really understand the stories that my grandmother was telling me about such horrors was through what I knew at the time, comic books and superheroes. And that became the lens through which I first saw these stories. As I got older, of course, and became a real student of the Holocaust and learned more, the kind of austerity and the visceral quality of these stories, the darkness and the truth, the cinema verite of them became quite apparent. And so I think hunter's mimics and mirrors my own journey into the stories of the holocaust and my grandmother's own tales starting from this comic book graphic novel point of view and then slowly having those
1: proverbial colors desaturate and become very stark and real well how forthcoming was she because obviously you hear about the survivors who just simply don't want to talk about it and then you hear about the ones who feel like it's their responsibility to tell those stories
3: Absolutely, and and I think so too. Was it for my grandmother in evolution? It was something that she didn't talk about often. I know my mom would tell me stories about asking, "Why don't we have? Why are we the only kids on the block without grandparents? You know, why don't we do this or why do we do that?" Um, but it really wasn't until the late '80s that my grandmother really started to talk about what actually happened. We have a um, a cousin who's a Holocaust scholar, Deborah Dwork, who interviewed my grandmother, and it was a catharsis for my grandmother to tell these stories. And then I think, you know, having so many grandchildren, seeing us and seeing the world late 80s, early 90s that we were living in, much like today, a world of anti-Semitism on the rise, it was important. She saw her story as a weapon. She saw her story as a seed. And with this sense of responsibility, she really needed to tell it. So to answer your question, I think at such a young age, she would tell it in anecdotes. If I didn't finish my dinner, she would talk to me about, you know, her experiences and why I must finish what's on the plate and how there were moments, years in her life where she was starved, you know, near to death. So it became these little piecemeal mosaics that began to paint this picture. And then as I got older, the kind of starkness of those stories and the, the deeper truths began to emerge and um, they began to lose that sheen and that superhero quality and they became really, really stark. Yeah, really painful.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the development process of the show? You're you're a first time showrunner yes. here, but did you write this on spec and take it out? Did you have did you even have an agent at that point? Walk us through the process that brought it to Amazon, and of course, Jordan Peele.
3: Absolutely. I started. I moved to Los Angeles right after college. I was tutoring, you know, in the afternoons and at night, and I was writing all day. And I started in features, so I was writing a lot of feature a lot of feature scripts. Um, I, I made the blacklist in twenty. 13 with my first feature and then again in 2014 with a feature called moonfall i got to meet some great filmmakers through that process and collaborate with darren aronofsky and susanna beer and jj abrams but hunters was my first tv piece that's been produced and i i certainly wrote it on spec when i pitched it to my agent at the time tiffany ward at caa she she loved it but there was a high bar of difficulty, and I think it's a really terrifying piece for many people, uh, terrifying a program, which, which I can talk to you a little bit about and, and kind of my experiences with that. Um, so specking it was of most importance. And then I created an 80-page Bible, which laid out all the characters for the show, uh, five seasons worth of material, uh, where the first season went. It was trying to answer every question that a buyer would ask. or To
0: make it as safe as possible, it, to make an investment of millions of dollars.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. It was like trying to anticipate every hole that they could poke um, and every critique because they they want to say no. You know, I think most (laughs) buyers want to get to know. And when they can't, they're like, oh, maybe we should buy this, you know. So I think that it was trying to have as foolproof of a pitch in a realized world as possible. When it was done, I then brought it to Jordan Peele and to Monkey Paw. I had met Jordan prior to uh, this. Uh, I was just a huge fan of Key and Peele. And my agent, I think, had just signed him, and so I said, "I'm dying. You know, please, can I meet with this guy? I'm such a fan. I think what Keion Peele did is so cinematic, and so you could tell that he's such a film buff. Uh, but just watching, you know, that that series. So I met with him, and he had just written Get Out. Uh, so I got to read it before it was, you oh, know, wow. Get Out, and it was like, <laughs> I have no notes. I don't know what to say. This is the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever read. But we had a really nice lunch, and then when Hunters was ready. Um, I sent it to Jordan and Wynn Rosenfeld had just come in to help Jordan run Monkey Paw. And so they really loved it and just started this wonderful odyssey. I mean, they are real, they're just partners in every sense of the word. They get in at the ground floor, they are so detail oriented, but also have such a great kind of you know, notion of the larger picture. Jordan especially has such a great feeling about where culture is and where it can go and how to push narratives. And his whole thing is really showcasing underrepresented stories uh, and underrepresented writers and filmmakers. And so this kind of just, you know, was a nice fit, I think, for Monkey Paw at the time.
0: And he had an overall deal. I believe still has one at, at Amazon. Is it, And was Amazon the first place that you took this to?
3: So when it, 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 this is how long ago it was, when, when we first went out with it, um, he had a first look with Sonar. Um, and so Sonar came onto the project as well. And then so we took it out wide to the town and, you know, at first, we were at a, a different network. Um, they made us a, a straight-to-series offer. At the time, it was a different regime at Amazon. It was a different regime than right. it is the, today, most yeah. everywhere. The Roy
0: Price regime. Yeah. Yes.
3: Yes. And uh, so we went with a, a different network. Which network um, was that? It was uh, it was Epics at the time. Oh wow. And the head of Epics was then left, and someone new came in to Michael run Epics. Yeah. And I just don't think it it uh, fit his vision of what Epics was going to be. So. My amazing agents at CA, Joe Cohen and Tiffany Ward, sent it to Jen Salky, who had just come in to run Amazon, and she read it. And uh, in the room, Jordan and I and, and Wynn we all went in to pitch for our lives because we're like, this is the perfect home. This is where we need to be. And before we could even pitch, you know, Jen, of course, had read the, you know, the pilot and, and the Bible. And so there's a wealth of material uh, but she bought it in the room. It was a really unbelievable moment. Even Jordan was was you know we were all really <laughs> stunned. It was really it was really humbling, and Jen just has this incredible chutzpah about her. This boldness. She just goes for things and she pushes the envelope. And she's so supportive and has been every step of the way of this process. And it's just been a dream, a dream to be at Amazon. And it's that feeling of that kismet. You know, like everything happens for a reason, and and stories land where they're meant to be. And, I mean, 100-plus million subscribers to Amazon Prime Video, it's it's a really wonderful place to showcase a story as specific and unique as, as Hunters.
1: I think it's been interesting the past couple of months watching Amazon kind of get around to promoting the show as the show it is, because initially they were promoting it almost as this it's a dark, gritty true-life 70s Nazi hunter thing. And then when the Super Bowl ad came out, people were like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. Yeah. And my description, my best description of the show is that it's exploitation. Does that seem like an appropriate
3: <laughs> phrase to
0: use?
1: <laughs> I love it. Yes. I mean, you know,
3: look, I, I think the way I would, re- you know, frame it is that growing up, I had very few superheroes as a Jewish kid on Long Island. There was Judah Maccabee and there was Jeff Goldblum. And there was... <laughs> There's no one really in between. And so my desire was to see a Jewish superhero on screen, not a nebishy, intellectual, effeminate, you know, ineffectual caricature of a superhero, but a real superhero with might and strength and power. And I think we so rarely see that with Jewish characters, that that was that became hunters for me. And so too, with our diverse band of hunters, I think underrepresented groups and diverse groups got to see or we'll get to see in in these hunters superheroes who have agency and power and strength. We have a Japanese-American character in in Injo Mitsushima, who uh, Louis Ozawa plays. Of course, you know, Jericho, who plays— Jericho Hinton. Yeah, yeah, Jericho Hinton plays Millie Morris. Tiffany Boone plays Roxy Jones. So we get to see these very different superheroes than we're used to seeing, and to see them as a group, which is so, I think, unique—
1: So yes, and
3: uh, for sure, Uh, for sure.
1: Well, I think a lot of people are going to make invariably an inglorious bastards, Quentin Tarantino kind of comparison. And I'm curious as to whether you sort of view him as being a major influence or if you guys are sort of dipping into the same pool, I guess, of influences.
3: It's a great question. It also, you know, harkens back to your earlier question of, of how Amazon has been publicizing and marketing the show. And I think. There's this great master plan that they have, which has been fantastic, because the show is so many things. They want to showcase everything that the show is, and so there have been these waves of the way it's been marketed. You know, much like be- beginning the way you're talking about it at first, but now having this kind of cheeky, eccentric, you know, humor to it, which there is, you know, so much so in this piece. It's eclectic. It's odd. It breaks the fourth wall.
1: Um, there's a lot of dark humor, and so I think they're trying to showcase the different flavors of this piece. And it's also extremely Jewish and not in an incidental, uh, secular, non-religious way. It is conspicuously and notably Jewish. I'm curious as to how that was sort of something you approached and whether anyone at any point said, do you want to tone that down just a little bit? <laughs> From top to bottom, it's a Jewish
3: show. It's, it's a show for many people. For me, it's a very Jewish show. And I think that comes in its inherent DNA. For me, the experience of being Jewish is one of both horror and humor. And I think we use the humor to cope with sometimes the horror of being a Jew in the world. And I think the show treats the story in much the same way. There's a great deal of horror and violence, but so too is there a lot of humor. It is inherently Jewish. I think it was exciting for me to show a Jewish uh, show. So, for example, what I was really after was being true to the Jewish experience. And I think. It was in a way to honor my grandmother, to honor my family, uh, to be specific about Judaism. I think so often in the Holocaust oeuvre of film and television when it deals with the Holocaust, we're often, Jews are often so portrayed solely as victims. So this was a a place to showcase our might, our agency. Uh, so often it is a non-Jewish hero, i.e. in *Inglorious Bastards or in Schindler's List, who comes in and, and saves the Jewish population. This was an opportunity in Hunters to have Jewish heroes get justice and vengeance and help save the world. It is so often just depicted the suffering. It was really important for me to have the Hora, for example. And in episode 106, uh, we have a wedding between two characters, and the Hora becomes this epic sort of seven-minute beautiful just celebration of of Jewish life. So feeling all the different gradients and degrees of, of Judaism and Jewish life was so important to the show. And Amazon and Jordan uh, encouraged that uh, so much. It just made it feel real and, and specific, you know? Yeah.
0: If I can interject here for a second, <laughs> sure. too. Yeah. I, I think it's so interesting that, you know, we are in a landscape where stories like this exist. I mean, do you think, you know, look, you're a, a, stu- a pop culture student. Do you think a show like this would have been made had we not been in an era that we are now where streamers have really exploded the the opportunity for content and we're seeing shows that are, are focusing on, Character or different cultures in a way that never would have existed 10 years ago?
3: It's a great question. And no, you know, I think even five years ago when I wrote this and when we tried to get it up and running, it was a terrifying buy-in for many buyers. I don't think we would have succeeded and nor did we really in that environment, in that climate. I think it takes the breadth of opportunity now, trailblazers like Jen who are daring and who want specificity in their shows and in their programming so no, I don't think this, this would have ever seen the light of day. And what a, what a wonderful kind of lesson yeah, for, sure. for for people to take chances on such specific worlds.
0: I wonder though, where did you shop it, and where did, and who else said no before Epics? Oh my goodness,
3: all over. I mean, all over. It, it wasn't that it was no. I think it was just varying degrees of of excitement. <laughs> I think it really took um, it really took someone like Jen Salky to say, "I love it. I get it. I feel it, and I know it." Because there were other people interested who just didn't share the vision, who wanted us to cauterize this or to edit that. But Jen just so wholeheartedly saw the vision that I had for it, that Jordan had for it. And she just said more. She wanted to push us toward our own vision, which was such a cool way of approaching, I think, this show and this material.
0: Yeah, usually you get the, you know, if the network note is the opposite of, you know, make this more mainstream, make this more broad skewing.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was interesting from Jen, Mark Restigini, Kara Smith, Vernon, and, and Albert, of course, all of them were servicing the specificity. It was always, can we make this more specific? We're not, you know, some of them are not Jewish, so we don't know what the Jewish custom would be, but let's inject one in here. You know, we're we're yearning for more. We're curious. We want to kind of delve into it. So it was, it was very surreal and very special. It, it Being a writer, you... Don't trust that at the at the outset. You know, you're like, when is the shoe going to drop? When when are the huge notes coming? When are they going to ask me to make this character non-Jewish, you know? And it just, they're they're so the antithesis
1: of those kinds of notes. It's it's really special. Well, the truly. subject matter seems like the kind of thing that would lend itself to some potentially spectacularly bad notes. You don't need to necessarily tell us specifically who those came from, but give us a couple of the bad notes you got.
3: The bad notes were, or just in, in discussions of this show when I was, Writing it, or when it first kind of went out to marketplace, can we really cheer for our heroes if they're killing Nazis? Um, Shut up! But don't. Oh yeah. Hold on. Oh yeah. Really? Really, really.
0: But wouldn't that oy make vey. them? I think I'm one, trying to say oive. Right
3: totally wouldn't fair. that make them antiheroes? Yes, I, I think the idea of heroes is a complicated one, and I think any great, you know, series is
1: one that explores, as this show does, what is the cost of violence and vengeance and justice. Well, obviously, there a comparison comes up with something like Munich, with Steven Spielberg's Munich. How do you think this corresponds with that in terms of portraits of the corrosive effects of violence and how it relates to the Jewish condition? Very much so. <laughs> there's a there's a scene
3: that I wrote in, in 108 between Meyer Offerman and Simon Wiesenthal, <laughs> who Judd Hirsch plays, uh, which is just kind of the, the centerpiece of the show which is really, what does it mean to be Jewish? And is what Meyer is doing Jewish or is what Simon is doing Jewish? Is the legal route to justice the Jewish thing? Or is this vengeance, this eye for an eye, the Jewish thing? And they have this kind of debate and discussion. And so I think the show really is a question in many ways. I I really try not to make a statement. I, of course, have my own points of view. You guys will, of course, as well. But really, I want different people when they watch the show to say, oh, I would definitely be this character. I would definitely do it this way and to really be able to
1: explore for themselves that that idea. That sort of leads probably too well into a a later question, but might as well get to it now. Have you gotten a sense of how this plays differently with Gentile audiences versus Jews?
3: Huh. I I haven't, just because, you know, it's been such a small group of people who have seen it, but I think that it's very anecdotal what I'm about to say, but I think many people take away very different things from it, and I think the people who are not Jewish are really excited to see so much Judaism in it and respond to the specificity of that. And I think to come to see, A, hey, this is just like my family. B, there's so much Judaism in our culture today that they don't realize the humor and the, you know, that, oh, that is so Jewish, or that started with the Jewish idea or Jewish question or Jewish, here's a prime example, right? The comic books themselves were created, written and designed in large part, by Jewish artists and Jewish writers coming back from the awful war, World War II, wanting to capture an idealized version of man and of woman, you know, of of humankind. And so I think that what's exciting to me about the show is that it can highlight how much immigrants, Jews, African-Americans have contributed to the culture
1: of uh, our world in really um, profound ways. But are there concerns about how it's going to play to an audience for whom the Holocaust is the thing that happened in movies? You know, it's it's a bad thing, but it's a thing that happened compartmentalized in historical movies. It's not a thing that's part of the DNA, day-to-day DNA. Well,
3: it's a great question. I think one of the important things for me in creating the show and in its DNA is that it begins as a superhero tale, which I think is very universal. And that was very important for me to do so that this is a story about a young man under the most extreme of circumstances coming of age and getting revenge for his grandmother, which to me is a very universal kind of notion. To then begin to pepper in these stories of the Holocaust, I think, allows people to access the show in a way that they can understand, and only then to begin to learn about things that they may not know. So too with the diversity of the hunters, all of whom are touched in harrowing and awful ways by white supremacy, whether it is the white supremacy of the Holocaust itself or the white supremacy of America at the time, we begin to see how that has trickled down into their own experiences. And so too, are they trying to reclaim power? So I think that people watching it will really begin to feel a sense of family, not only with our Jewish characters or with our black characters or with our Asian characters, but that we are all in some way you know, fighting these same battles and to do it together will perhaps net the best results.
0: One thing I will say, I watched the pilot and while I did feel that that sense of family, I also felt this this sense of, of terror that I couldn't shake for wow. a few hours after and certainly was with me the next day of white supremacists at, who watched this show and thinking the idea of like, you know, let's go out and, and do what's happening on the show. And and it it, it was very unnerving to me. I mean, In in your mind, how much should viewers be unnerved by how much fun the hunters want to be in this show? You know what I mean? Like you mentioned that this show, obviously it's a drama, but it has a certain amount of humor too in it. Right. But yet I'm, I find myself a little bit scared.
3: Absolutely. And, and, you know, I I think I really view this as a 10 hour film, a, a real book. And so You will really see the cost of these exploits for the hunters throughout the series. And so, what I would say is, as you, I would love to, you know, talk more as you continue to watch the series and say, do you still feel that the glamour of this or the wish fulfillment of this? Or is there something, what is the cost that these actions take on our heroes? And there's a severe cost, especially for Jonah uh, in many ways. So, that's really what I'm trying to get at in this series. Of course, the humor is will, will be forever there. Uh, and different characters will feel different things. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about the show is that I and we really wanted to represent the different modes of um, thought on vigilantism and of seeking justice. But it's also a show and just trying to, you know, we often want to emphasize that, you know, throughout the series. And, and we try to do it in a varying degree of ways, for sure. Yeah.
0: But at a time when we are living in a world where anti-Semitism... There are the attacks on Jewish temples and synagogues and that this continues to happen. And white supremacy is, I don't even want to say it's having a moment, but it definitely, you know, you watch the news just as much as I do. You see it. I feel unsettled. I feel, I feel worried like people in the wrong, like in in the wrong hands, this show becomes something that is a calling card of saying, hey, go find some Jews. You know what I mean? And. That's what made me feel unsettled. I,
3: I understand your question. Is
0: that a concern that I, you have?
3: I think that those actions are there regardless of the show. I think that, that I, I, I think what the show offers, in fact, is an antidote to, the, to that. I think one of the things that the show does and that I'm most proud of is that it shows the casualness of anti-Semitism, the casualness of white supremacy and racism and xenophobia. And what I mean by that is I think, of course, there are the extremists out there who are going to do these horrific things. But I think what the show allows is for people to say... Oh, do I ever th- have that thought? Do I ever think something bigoted or, or something discriminatory in my own life? And if, I think if we can reach the wide majority of our audience who is willing and, and open to pondering those kinds of things, we're going to lead to a better and more open society in which these heinous acts of violence uh, won't happen as frequently.
1: that makes sense. Now, when it came to treating the actual Holocaust and the flashbacks to the camps, what kind of rules did you need to set yourself in terms of what you did and didn't want to depict, what you could and couldn't fictionalize, et cetera? That was the thing that I thought about every night when I went to sleep and every morning when I woke up. I think that
3: was the greatest responsibility and burden to really shoulder throughout this process was being respectful and reverential to the victims of the Holocaust, of course, and to depicting those scenes in particular, I can kind of take you through the process of it. I always knew that it should be, that the Holocaust and the flashbacks should be depicted as soberingly as possible, that they never feel gratuitous, that violence was more suggested in the past than in the 70s where it's incredibly pulpy and stylized to really have and feel that difference. There was also great pains to ensure that, for example, the tattoos of all of the victims that are depicted in the past and even our survivors in the present, the numbers are above the number 202,499. 202,499 was the highest number given to a real life victim of the Holocaust. And so we did not want to depict a real number, a person with that number, and by some way realize a real individual or their plight. You know, so we tried to take great pains to invent certain facets to the story that could really showcase the difference between documentary and uh, something that's more filmic. The chess match, for example, to my knowledge, that was not a real event. That was not a real form of the sadism of the Nazis. However, it's very much in the spirit of the kinds of games and sadistic exploits that they would exact and perpetrate against their victims. So Scenes like that were incredibly necessary to motivate and help the audience understand why our hunters are doing what they're doing, to show just how heinous and how sadistic the Nazis were. But again, trying to have a bit of a a line between actual documentary and then the creation.
1: And how hard was it then going from those scenes into the fun 70s scenes? Because it seems like that would be a really tough transition to make. And sometimes I'm sure you had to discover, okay, we can't make the transition we're trying to make.
3: Oh yes, I mean, it was so much in the editing, you know, Bay was discovered there. And I think at times depicting the past and then hard cutting to the present actually helped satirize or shed light on the mores of today and helped indict, you know, certain folks or certain groups, which was very helpful. At times it was way too jarring, you know, to get in from the past to the present. And I think it was a further lesson to us of just how harrowing the past was that we couldn't in the edit, you know, really make that move uh, so seamlessly all the time. It was often like shaving even a single frame would help so much. It It was so interesting, kind of deliberating during that process.
0: At Press Tour, where yeah. Dan and I were listening to your, your <laughs> panel, we were both yeah. mid-panel. We both kind of looked at each other and said, yes, absolutely, let's get you on the show. But, you know, one of the other panels was uh, for a, at HBO, David Simons, for the plot Against America, and he joked that his initial instinct when he started was that everybody involved had to be Jewish, hmm. whether it be the actors, department heads, etc., but when they actually hit the ground running they had stars like John Turturro. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Did you have any similar instincts?
3: Yes. Yes and yes, in the sense that, yes, it was really important to me that, for example, Logan Lerman is Jewish, Josh Radner is Jewish, Carol Kane, Saul Rubinek, Judd Hirsch. We have a fantastic cast of actors, many of whom are Jewish, that I think just gives a a great degree of authenticity and knowledge to the roles. Saul Rubinek's parents were survivors of the war, and so he came into... You know this process and this, this experience with such a wealth of knowledge and nuance that deepened the show in a way that no one else could. You know, and and so I think having collaborators and partners to do that and to offer that was wildly um, valuable and also incredibly lucky. And so too was it important for people who are not Jewish to come in and give their point of view and their perspective. Diversity. In every sense of the word was the mission statement, both in front of the camera, behind the camera, in the writer's room, for the directors that we hired, of course, for cast and the characters, you know, created and depicted, in part because that is the world we live in today. You know, I think it, it's odd to me that it's such a political thing to see a group of superheroes, like the notion of a group of superheroes as diverse as our hunters are on a billboard on Sunset Boulevard is political. And both how exciting and how sad that that is political today, that that is brave and bold and different. Um, hopefully, we'll get to a place. And I think we're, we're really moving that direction, of course, with great champions like Jordan Peele, who are moving culture and
1: moving, you know, storytelling into a world of great diversity. <laughs> well, but then, of course, there's Al Pacino, who is not so Jewish, but has throughout his career played a large number of Jews. I was watching and obviously you don't get stuck with Al Pacino, you know, he's, he's <laughs> Al Pacino. But I found myself wondering if there's a difference between the way this plays when you have someone with the same 70s iconography as Al Pacino, but say if it's a Dustin Hoffman, for example, who is, you know, more clearly Semitic, what do you think having Al Pacino does there beyond just he's Al freaking Pacino, whatever? But And,
0: and what was the courting process like? Because he's never done TV before. He's never done been a series regular on a TV show.
1: Absolutely. It was... Al
3: is magical. I mean, Al is uh, the greatest collaborator and partner, truly, that I and we could have asked for. He is, oh my gosh, he's a mensch of like the heart, mind, and soul. He is a genius, of course. He's a chameleon. And he's just so soulful and kind. So the process was his agent called and had read Hunters and said, you know, I think Al Pacino might respond to something about this character. There's something in it that I think he may really be interested in. And it was so mind-blowing. I mean, it's so mind-blowing to think Al Pacino, A, reading this, you know what I mean, and then being interested in it. But so Al read the script, and then he read, I think he wanted to see, like, because he comes from film. He wants to see, at least for the first season, like where it begins and where it ends. Um, he could understand that, you know, future seasons are not written because not, they're not greenlit. But at least for the first season to really understand the beginning, middle, and end of this first chapter, I would say, of the story. So the writer's room was open. And I think we had a number of scripts. I quickly wrote kind of episode 10, the last so that he could read it. <laughs> and that was a mad dash to do that. And then he read it. He read all of the scripts. I met with him with uh, Nikki Toscano, the co-showrunner, and Alfonso gomez rejon our executive producer and director of the pilot. And we had four meetings with Al at his home and really just talked about the character and where he went and Al's feelings on it. And it was just this wonderful process. I think he wanted to see, hey, are we collaborators? Are we people who listen and who are open and who can change and who can move with kind of his instincts? Um, but it was such a otherworldly process seeing him he would just sit and you could see his mind working and he was like building this character in his mind he was fleshing out the memories that this person had what this guy what his favorite meal is or the song that when it comes on the radio this character would actually hum to or what his deepest darkest memory I mean all these things both large and small that you could just begin to see Al kind of building in his mind and i think by the end of the fourth session he's like yeah i can i see this i really see this and i can feel this and so from that moment i mean from the first moment i met him to even now he's weighing in on everything on the marketing materials on publicity i mean he is so devoted to this series and to this character it's it's really been he's been one of the most unbelievable partners i could ask for he's gracious with his time he is so exacting in all the best ways. He dreams of the show and the character. He'll call me, you know, at nine, nine AM, uh, you know, during production, Hey, I had this great idea for this great line, or we'd sit in his trailer and come up with, you know, alts. And, and he's just such a wonderful leader to both cast and crew. That was really a a real honor. So when you ask why Al, because it's Al, you know, and it's not because he's famous, Al Pacino, it's because he's famous because he's Al Pacino,
1: you know? Well, who was, who was actually in your head as you were writing?
3: You know, I didn't I, I didn't really have anyone in my head. Both of my mom's parents were survivors of the Holocaust. My grandmother, Sarah Weil, incredibly important in my life and, and was so present in me and my brothers' lives growing up. And so she would really tell me the stories. But my grandfather, Manny, Menachem, Grossman, I didn't know him. And so creating the character of Meyer was a way for me to meet him for the first time, to meet my grandfather for the first time, uh, to do him justice in some way. And so I think he was in my mind so much in, in writing that character.
0: So you mentioned in prepping the Bible for this, you had uh, a five season plan for this. Yes. First of all, will Al Pacino be back for a potential second season?
3: I hope so. Oh my, I hope there is a second season. I mean, I hope there's, you know, so it's not like I'm,
0: a, you know, you get this big star in and it's one season. He dies at the end of the season and then becomes the show becomes, you know, honoring him and et cetera.
3: Yeah. The, the, the show is first of all, please let's guys if you have any say let's let's get a season two going <laughs> there's so much story to tell but I think you know no there, there's such an exciting opportunity for all these characters into season two certainly and beyond that I would just be
1: so excited to bring them back and get to work with them again and and see where we can go for sure been noticing in the past, I guess, a couple of months were sort of, I don't want to say it's necessarily a golden age of conspicuous Jewish storytelling, but you- Jewish you A
0: Jewish about? <laughs> exactly. Jewish songs to go
1: with juiceploitation. <laughs> all. I like that. Really but, good. you know, you got, you're, you're on the same network as The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plot Against America is coming next month. From HBO. Uh, yeah. it, uncut Gems is in the movie theaters. Do you think there's, like, do you think that's actually a specific response to the rise of anti-Semitism in the world? Or is there a different reason why this is in the water in your mind? I think it's a whole host of things. I think it's certainly the rise
3: and the epidemic of anti-Semitism makes these stories even more urgent, certainly. I think Jewish stories have existed forever, but I think the specificity with which they were allowed to exist has changed. So I think there were very Jewish stories in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early aughts. Um, But now I think people are saying, uh, and it's in part, you know, a commerce thing where it's to differentiate from everything else that is out there. What makes this piece unique? What makes this hero unique? And I think it is the Jewishness uh, of, you know, in in these Jewish stories, at least. So I think it's a a bit of both.
1: But it's funny because obviously there's the old canard about Jews running Hollywood and all that. And the the answer to that, the response to that is almost always, well, then why isn't every character on TV actually actively Jewish and you don't see it? And it's been interesting to see this actual you know, thing identifiable, specific, as you say, Jewish characters appearing on screen. Absolutely, and and even so, you know, the, I think the films and the series is that that you've just
3: mentioned are but ten drops in an ocean of of content, and so. To your point, I think they're making a lot of noise, but I still think there aren't as many Jewish stories as there could be out there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Shifting a little bit, I cover—I love uh, talking about development and things yeah. that we'll see in five years. Yes. Um, but, you know, you signed a big <laughs> overall deal with Amazon last November. Yes. And I'm curious, you know, as a first-time showrunner—now, yeah. obviously, you have experience in the film film world, too, but, yes. like, what kind of showrunner do you want to be? Do you want to be mm. the one, like a Greg Berlanti type where you're juggling, you know, two, 10, 20 shows at a time— or is this more the Vince Gilligan style, where it's one show, do it extremely well, focus on whatever comes next when that's done?
3: The unfair answer is both, I, th- <laughs> I think, and I think it's like what story? I, I love being part of every little detail and every iota of and because the you do show. have a
0: second show. I should I should have mentioned you do have the, um, a war of the worlds like show for Apple that right. you're working on. Right.
3: Correct. And and um, you know I I think for me, which has been so wonderful, having the experience of both, uh, whereby hunters. I'm there on the ground floor. I'm in every, you know, every detail of the show has in some way been filtered through me uh, and have such control over it. In part, you know, the series at Apple uh, was starting production while I was on Hunters. And so there's a different kind of team doing that day to day. So I've been able to have this wonderful experience of having both modes that you're talking about, the Vince Gilligan mode and then the Berlanti kind of mode. I think it's both. And I think it really is... I would the the series that I generate, I would love to really see through, but I would love to partner with unbelievable writers of whom I know many, especially now working in these rooms with so many amazing uh, writers to be able to partner with them and shepherd their vision and allow them and have them kind of go off and and run their series as well, because there's so much there's only so much time in the day. And of course, there's the law of diminishing returns.
1: Um, so I think it's it's going to be about both. Yeah. But presumably, because of the personal genesis of Hunters, this is not something where you could imagine someone else running it while you're doing other things. No.
3: Yeah. It's so, this is so me. It's so personal to me that I, I think um, I would have a really hard time doing that. And they're, you know, they're amazing writers, I think, who could do it so well. I don't think that's the issue. I think it's more that just, uh, yeah,
1: it's and mine. And before we get to our last question, I just want Please. to ask on sort of the basic level, why is she softa and not Bobe? It's a great question. <laughs> uh, I've been asked that a lot over the course of production. <laughs>
3: and it's so interesting to me because, uh, you know, growing up, she was she was actually Sabta S-A-B-T-A, because my oldest brother couldn't pronounce the F. <laughs> um, but I don't know why the Hebrew and not the Yiddish. Uh, but that's what she always was for us, and so... But I've been asked that a
1: lot. This was just—it was—it was the first question that came up the first time she was mentioned. I'm yeah. like, so she's his booby, yeah, you yeah, know.
3: yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. It was—it was soft and Zadie, okay, uh, which is a mixture. It I is. Know, Those both. that, that yes. makes
1: that makes no sense at all to totally, me, sir. I'm totally. walking away. I want to know.
0: I'm gonna find.
3: I'm gonna ask my mom, you know? <laughs> Uh But it's a great question. A great well, question. we
0: do always like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you watching right now and enjoying?
3: Oh my goodness, it's such a great question. <laughs> It's a political question, too. Um, I, you know, I I, I have to say I, I'm watching so much, but, but one of my guilty pleasures was Cheer on Netflix.
0: You're not the first person. Am I not the that. first person? Yeah.
3: It was really just so fantastic. And I want to meet that whole crew. And Monica <laughs> is amazing. And I'm thinking of 10 characters I can base off, off of her. Uh, she has a kind of Meyer Offerman like quality about her, uh,
1: <laughs> which is uh, which is so interesting. Given her own religious background, that seems very confusing to me. Yeah. But I sort of can but pretend you know I, mean. I see what she's saying. I know saying. she really has a hold over this group of uh, a very skilled and talented people. I bet you you've got them all lined up with the characters now. You know which one totally Jerry is yes. which one Morgan is. Yeah, okay, I can absolutely.
3: This <laughs> is
0: going to be the show that you yell at me all year, year for not watching, right? Right, Dan. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'll,
3: they'll get their character payments later and yeah, all of that. But. Yeah, and I I just uh, I've been watching The Outsider on HBO as well, um, which has been great. And it's in part because I've finished Fleabag and watched it three times, and The Boys, and all of that. But but right now, those are the two.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, David.
3: Thank you guys so
1: much.
0: Thank Thanks. you. Hunter's premieres Friday, February twenty first on Amazon.
1: Number five.
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the critics' corner. This week, Amazon bows Hunters, Netflix debuts America Ferrara-produced dramedy Gentified and superhero comedy I Am Not Okay With This, as well as the second season of Altered Carbon, Star Wars The Clone Wars launches on Disney+, Plus. Fresh Off the Boat signs off on ABC, and The Walking Dead and Better Call Saul both return to AMC. Dan, what you got? I think
1: it's at least worth acknowledging the importance of Fresh Off the Boat on ABC uh, as There are not that many Asian-American-fronted comedies on television and very few that were as specific and at times as very good as this one. I I think that the show has, over the past couple seasons, begun to vary rather wildly in quality on a week-to-week basis. And when there was the big news story about Constance Wu's, let's just say, displeasure at its renewal for another season last year... I kind of understood her theory because the first couple seasons of that show, she was giving a great performance and it was a performance that in a different circumstance probably should have been an Emmy-nominated performance. Certainly would have been if this were 2003 or if and there this was were... half as much content. Exactly. It's just, it, it simply got lost and that's too bad. It shouldn't have. But then though, they really did lose track of her character. And I think if you look back at the past couple seasons... I, I don't think it's a all that good performance anymore. And that's not in any way Constance Wu's fault. But I think if you're her, you look at what you've been given and the writers lost the thread of that character and it happens. So I think that in the balance, it's been a very good show. And if you look at like seasons two and three and four, maybe those were kind of the peak. It was a really, really good show. And I will miss it. I think it was a show that did some very good, very specific things and is worthwhile.
0: And be sure to check out a great guest column from executive producer Melvin Marr about the impact that Fresh Off the Boat has made. You can find that over at THR.com.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, definite recognition for Fresh Off the Boat. It's an important show, even if we maybe haven't always talked about its importance enough. The best thing premiering this week for me, unquestionably, is Better Call Saul on AMC. It, it is one of the best dramas or dramedies on television and has been for several years and probably simultaneously got lost in comparisons to, uh, to Breaking Bad, which were inevitable and entirely fair. I mean, it's a prequel series and it was always going to get compared. But maybe for whatever reason, it hasn't gotten the Emmy attention that it deserve. Definitely the fact that Ray Seahorn has never been nominated for an Emmy for that show is ridiculous. And at some point, it would be nice if in the next two years, it could actually win a couple of those. Bob Odenkirk really deserves to win an Emmy at some point for Better Call Saul. It's it's a great performance. I've seen the first three episodes of the new season. They're very, very, very good. At times, they're they're genuinely great. And I think I've kind of gotten out of my system, maybe the need to say, oh, it has potential to, when all is said and done, be better than Breaking Bad, whether or not it's true is almost irrelevant. It's a great show, and it's a great show entirely on its own merits, and should be celebrated and enjoyed as that. The, the first few episodes coming back are, are just great. I always love their premieres because I love the the visit to the black and white world of Omaha and, and getting to revisit Gene from Omaha, that character at his Cinnabon. So that's that's a pleasure, and uh, you should definitely be looking forward next week to the second part of our two part interview with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould, who talk a lot about the new season. Uh, they specifically talk about episode eight, which you should all start getting excited for. Haven't seen it yet, but people are talking about the buzz already. So. That's that. You just heard our interview with David Weil, creator of Hunters. And I think if you listen to the interview, you probably got a sense of my feeling of the show. That it's a show I really find very interesting to talk about and to find very fascinating to think about. And I don't know if it's a good show. And when we did. And you the,
3: seen how many
0: episodes?
1: I've seen five. We had seen three when we did the interview with David. And then Amazon put out a couple more, but they haven't put out the full season. And several of the things that he mentioned as being in the second half of the season in our interview sounded really, really interesting to me. And I would have liked to have gotten to experience them. Yeah, it is is a show that is going to have very, very polarizing responses. And some people, I think, are going to dismiss it quickly and probably out of hand. And I don't think that's the right response. Other people are going to love it and think it's incredibly fun. And they're going to be like, we it's a ride. And I don't know that that's really a good response either, because it ignores a lot of the things about the show that are, that are dark and maybe require more discussion analysis, immersion in than just we it's, it's exploitation cinema on TV. So, I'm very interested in that show and will be interested in what responses are from people. And I don't know if it's good, but I definitely plan this weekend on watching the rest of the season, assuming I have time because there's a lot of stuff on TV. But And
0: because you're buying a place, Dan.
1: It is true. I've got, I've got real estate things that are on my agenda. So really, there's a lot of television and a lot of life. And so, yeah, but... It's an interesting show. So that's a lot of TV for people to talk about. But definitely everyone should be checking out Better Call Saul if for some reason they haven't.
0: Yeah, Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week when, as Dan mentioned, we'll have part two of our Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold interview. And if you missed part one, be sure to go back and check out our January 24th episode.
1: It's a really great chat. They talk about the decision to end the show and Vince expresses his enthusiasm and conviction that it's going to have a better end than Breaking Bad, which is saying a lot.
0: And we break a little news.
1: We do indeed. So it's a good interview. You should go back and check out both parts. But until then, be sure to subscribe to to us on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us rate us if you really like us leave a little commenty thing it helps build the word of mouth if you want to communicate us we're always happy to talk with you guys on twitter bring us your questions comments and concerns but really again if you have questions save them for future mailbag segments and email us at tvstop5 at thr.com that's TV's Top 5 the number five at thr.com until next week leslie
0: until next week my friend